I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast. I feel like I say this every episode, but I'm actually so excited about this episode. I've been thinking about this concept of holiness since probably about last year. And before we get too far ahead into the episode, I'd like to give some credit here to the book Rethinking Holiness by Bernie van der Waller. It certainly assisted me greatly in preparing this episode. My interest in holiness began while studying a college unit on Christian history. For one of the assignments, I had to investigate the moves of the spirit that happened when John Wesley ministered in England and then continued to in America. So it was probably around the 1700s to the early 1800s. Some of the stories of what happened in that time and shortly afterward were truly staggering. And at the crux of Wesley's message was his revelations about holiness. As it spread across and engaged preachers and believers, revivals took place and not just one revival. It truly would have been such an incredible time in the history of Christianity to be alive. But it is difficult to read these stories and not wonder why. Why are we not seeing such moves in our day? I'm not talking about the sporadic revivals that happen every now and then, but the same series of coordinated moves of the Holy Spirit. Now, I haven't heard many discussions and definitely no messages about holiness in the last 15 years of church attendance, and yet the generation before mine was quite obsessed with holiness. I've wondered whether there is nervousness in today's generation to talk about a topic like this, since past generations spoke about it so vigorously that it overshadowed biblical precepts like love. There was a person I knew who served in one of the teams at church. One day, they decided to get an earring in a location that was not an ear. What followed was many conversations with their leader about the inappropriateness of this earring, and eventually, they were kicked off the team. The reason they were given for this exclusion was that their new earring was not holy. In other words, it was worldly. This was my first exposure to the idea of holiness, and I've heard many stories like this since. But at the time, I was probably so perplexed that I didn't even give full release to the multi-layered conflicting thoughts that simmered underneath the surface of my brain. From what I gleaned from the leader's comments, which were evidently reported secondhand, was that holiness was about being different, or more specifically, being different to the world. But what I couldn't work out was how the specific placement of an earring in a different location was worldly, and why was an earring on an ear not, which the world clearly does more so than earrings in other locations. Why was there a distinction in the leader's mind between these two locations? How do we distinguish what is worldly and what is holy? And who is deciding? Wouldn't much of these distinctions be based on personal opinion? How much is one's culture and preferences influencing that determination? And most importantly, how far could this logic go? Couldn't there be a valid argument to advocate that all Christians should live like monks or the Amish based on this argument of holiness? Is this not how Puritanism would have developed? You can see why I dropped the topic all those years ago, because I couldn't find a valid answer for any of these subconscious questions, which I didn't have the bandwidth to face 
myself at the time. I was just really sad for the team member who got kicked out. And even now, I can't imagine how that version of holiness espoused by that leader could produce the things that our spiritual ancestors experienced back in the times of holiness movement, right? I mean, did is that all that really happened? Like people didn't wear earrings in certain places or people removed tattoos? I don't know. Something's missing, right? So what is holiness then? The most common word used in the Old Testament for holiness is Kadesh, and it's taken to mean separateness. And by separateness, it implies that something or someone is unique and distinctive. God himself is called holy more than any person, place, or entity in the Old Testament, indicating that by nature, he is distinctly different from all created things, but also that he therefore transcends all created things. To say that God is one of a kind is really not too far off what holiness is, but obviously at a more intense and multiplied capacity or at a divine capacity. By implication, this also means that there is no equal to God and therefore no competitor. His value, weight and significance by virtue of his uniqueness esteems him as beyond comparison or as earlier stated, separate. Whilst God himself is the most holy one with no equal, his association with places and people can deem them as holy. His people were and are holy. The land on which Moses stood where the fire curiously blazed in a bush was holy. Only God ultimately makes anything or anyone holy, and again, it's largely by association. So why then does God encourage us to be holy? There are many times where God esteems his people to be holy, like in Leviticus 11.44, which states, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Or Leviticus 19.2, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the Old Testament demonstrates to us that there are many behaviors and practices that the Israelite people were meant to keep up with so that they would be holy. So does that validate the argument of the leader I mentioned early? Could there be some random Jewish law that he or she was following, like thou shalt not have earrings in any other place than your ear? I'm actually not really sure, so let's keep going anyway. Before we can talk about becoming holy, we have to deepen our understanding of holiness. For most people in previous generations, and certainly the leader previously mentioned, the idea of holiness is attached to morality. Being holy equates to having Christian morals that truly do contrast the world. It's not to say that the world doesn't hold some values, but at the core of it, Christianity determines its values according to God's ideas, which are revealed to us through scripture. Whilst the world's morals are determined often through philosophical rhetoric and cultural norms, and by this I mean what is societally acceptable at the time, we can see much of that change happening in cultural norms today. We must not forget that one of the biggest reasons we care about the abuse of children is because our cultural norms have changed to view children differently to the times of the Bible or just the times of the past, really. We value children now. We care about what happens to them. This is not true of our world's historical ancestors. But here are some examples of countercultural norms as derived from Christian thought. We are to love our enemies, 
Now, that's not something that is encouraged by the world. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's commonplace to hate your enemies, to sabotage them, and exact revenge upon them. We are to worship God above all. Nothing or no one else ought to be worshipped. That's not the habit of this world either. This world worships politicians, celebrities, money, lifestyle, and pretty much anything that could be worshipped. These may be truly countercultural ideas, but as time has gone by, Christian morals had evolved to become much more narrow. Like certainly when I first started coming to church, there was mainly four things that were talked about when it was when someone was mentioning anything that was classed as immoral. And I like to call it the big four. It is sex, alcohol, drugs, and I'm also putting a slash smoking in there, and clothing. Now, I am being a bit facetious, right? But there is actually some element of truth here. Being worldly meant having sex outside of the marriage relationship, drinking alcohol, and also anything that associates itself with alcohol. So um, locations that were purpose for drinking alcohol, such as bars, pubs, and nightclubs, smoking or taking drugs, and of course, clothing. So for, for clothing, what I'm talking about is, you know, if guys wore earrings or they had ripped jeans, that was considered like pretty s- sinful. I don't know, uh, not moral anyway. And for girls, it was promiscuous clothing. So short skirts, low cut tops, not even low cut tops, actually anything that just made you seem like you had a figure. That was the kind of thing. Yes, There were other Christian morals that were talked about. Like I said, I was being facetious. But these were the first signs, besides church attendance, that were taken to determine whether someone was backsliding or not. And that bit, I'm not being, I'm not kidding about that. That's actually true, at least in Australia anyway. And I reckon it's probably true of least America and the UK too. This was believed to be holiness. Now, I was in a pretty old school church at one point in my younger years, and I can tell you that these external observable behaviors were used to actually judge a person's discipleship journey all the time. I remember a pastor got a young guy up who would wear very proper clothes, and they made comments about how this young man was pursuing God. And I knew this young man personally, and believe me, he wasn't. They really knew nothing about his private life. They saw that he was at church regularly and that he was wearing good, wholesome clothes, according to that generation, and they presumed he was holy in some moralistic way, just from clothing. Now, the interesting thing about all of this is that the previous generations that weren't Christian had a problem with the big four too. Now, my dad's not even really from the previous generation that I'm thinking of. Like, it's probably the generation before him. But when my brother got an earring in his teen years, my dad didn't talk to him for like a week. And it's not because my dad had any real moral viewpoint on the matter either. It certainly doesn't say anything in Hinduism about earrings. In fact, it's probably pro earrings. But his discomfort came from the fact that an earring on a boy at that time communicated rebellion. That communicated that that person wasn't taking life seriously and that they were irresponsible. You know, think James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, you know. Previous generations definitely expressed discomfort, whether religious or not, with sex outside of marriage and binge drinking. Like I said, particularly the generation prior to my dad's generation. So here's the thing. Some of the things that I've mentioned do absolutely constitute as Christian morals. We do consider sex as sacred and when done outside of marriage is not as God intended. We do believe getting drunk is inconsistent with biblical ideas. 
But there are some things that are debatable, like a glass of wine, going to a pub or a bar or a nightclub. I mean, just because you go there doesn't mean that you drink. Some people actually just really like dancing. Now, we could pull apart each one here and debate and argue, but it's not really the point of why I'm bringing this up. All I'm trying to say is, isn't it possible that many of these issues were actually a cultural interpretation of morals rather than a biblical one? Could we not make some argument for that also? I think we could. So if our ideas of holiness are influenced by our culture, what does it really mean to be holy as God is holy? Here is another factor we must consider. We as a Christian community have often made the error of presuming that holiness equals morality, but the manner in which holiness is discussed and the Hebraic terminology regarding holiness more aptly imply that morality is simply one component of holiness. We would be wrong to exclude morals in the discussion of holiness, but we demonstrate our shallow understanding of holiness when we presume this is all it can mean because the Bible provides us with a more expansive definition of holiness. For instance, whilst God is frequently called holy in the Bible, there's actually very little that explicitly states that this refers to his moral excellence. And if we think that is what makes God holy, we don't understand enough about God. That's only one part of what makes him holy. The fact that God is the creator makes him holy. Think about it. He created all living things without any need or dependence on some other existing created order. That's something that nothing in this world can do. No animal is able to create offspring without some other existing created matter being used in a creative process. Any creativity we have still relies on an existing created order to create within. For instance, We use the materials given to us in our physical bodies to procreate. I mean, we don't use it like the way I'm saying it, but you get what I mean. We don't create self-sufficiently. We produce crops by a seed, a seed which we did not or could not create. Sure, we can modify the seed, but we still rely on the original seed's existence in order to grow a single thing. Now, if you gave yourself a red-hot minute to consider how every single thing we have made – Every technological piece of equipment designed or created in this world ultimately relied on an existing creation from which we obtained our resources, including knowledge. What kind of picture is that giving you about us in our ability to create? And what kind of picture does it give you of God in that he requires nothing? Are you beginning to see at least part of his distinctiveness, his transcendence? And we're only touching on the surface of what makes God holy. There's his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. There's his existence outside of time and space. There's a fact that he existed before time, like, oh my gosh. So let's go deeper. So now that we recognize that holiness is far, far more than moralism and is really everything that makes God separate from us and the world and realizing that holiness is largely something that occurs via association, why then does God ask us to be holy? Doesn't the fact that holiness is a matter of association mean that we can't attain it? Okay, so there's something we need to see about holiness. There are two states of holiness. 
we are firstly deemed holy by association. This is a kind of holiness that is given to us by virtue of being his. It is a position, a status, a declaration. But our association with God is not only a status, it's also a progression. Imagine you're making a meal. Your friend asks you to salt the dish. You put the slightest smidgen, I mean barely even a smidgen of salt into the dish. Is the dish salted? Yes, it is. It is in the state of having been salted. But is it salty? It could be more salty, right? It could More salt could be added, yes, because the dish can both be salted in the state of being salted and be in the process of salting. Sounded weird. The same can be said of our holiness in association with God. We are holy by association with God, but the saturation of that holiness within us is also a process. Christians have long called this progressive association sanctification, and that's exactly what it is, sanctification, the process of participating with God's plan toward Christlikeness. By pursuing sanctification, we in essence are pursuing holiness. We are becoming holy. Now, here's why we need to talk about this. The error of previous generations is that they were so focused on holiness that they actually thought it could be attained by willing it or self-discipline, both of which are man-made energies, and many Christians still do. Of course, we are meant to try, but beyond the -the in-the-moment opportunities, God has a more long-term growth and development plan if we were to surrender to it. And that long-term plan is holiness, real holiness, not some fabricated type that is observable and surface level. Sadly, because of this surface level holiness that was, you know, the previous generation attested to, it could be the very reason a lot of my generation have dropped the topic because it's in the too hard category. But holiness is still relevant and still God's desire for us all. It's just that it's his journey and we surrender to it. This is not the only pink elephant in the theme of holiness, though. As you would guess, we need to change what we think holiness is. It's not earrings and attire and things that can be observed with the naked eye. It's the stuff under the surface, like our hatred for those that are different to us or our unforgiveness. In my journey toward depth, God has truly surprised me in the kinds of things he has brought to the surface. It hasn't been whether I go to a pub or whether I have earrings here or there. Not even close. God has brought to the surface things like believing I'm a victim or my unhealthy ambitions for success or the conditionality of my love, my selfishness that pursues self-fulfillment in every aspect of life, from what I wear to what I eat and what I do with my money. It's all the stuff that happens in the deep recesses of the heart that I've pretended or just ignored. You know, I always thought I was a pretty loving person, but the deeper I've gone in my journey with God, allowing him to lead me in the sanctification process, which is really all going deep is, the more I have seen the sin, and boy, is it ugly. I thought I loved God, but I continue to see that all the stuff that operates at the surface level prevents me from loving God. And so he keeps peeling back all the sinister agendas and lack of trust and lack of faith in his patient and kind way. He does it in a way that makes it possible for me not to be buried under condemnation. 
It's done in a hopeful way. Let me just unpack one thing that God brought to the surface recently. This is just one. God showed me how little every Christian, especially myself, really cares about doing things for the glory of God. When I wrote books, I absolutely wrote them out of obedience to God. But was it for God's glory that I wanted to be successful at writing? Was it for God's glory that I wanted them to be bestsellers? Was it for God's glory that I wanted to earn a decent living from it? No, not at all. Now, we can easily find a way to justify using scripture. You know, I could probably turn that around to make it seem like it was for the glory of God if I was afraid to confront the truth. But most of the time when we want to do well at our jobs and be successful at what we do, it's not really because of God's glory. Because if it was, why do we need to dictate how it looks? Why does everybody need to know about it? So that was a good three-month process of delving with God into that. And what was the outcome? Look, I definitely still struggle at times, but largely I feel far more convinced that what I am doing is really truly for his glory without strings attached. I care very little, well, certainly far less than I used to, whether I gain anything, even if it's just feeling good from the things God calls me to do. Now, that's just one of the many things that God is often taking me deep on, and I can feel with each matter he brings to the surface that I grow into a more devout worshipper and follower of him. I can hardly hold myself together every time I speak to him. His goodness overwhelms me. And it's still not enough. I want more. And this is all because he has continued to lead the process of sanctification. The thing that we still continuously, repeatedly, annoyingly fail to see is that who we are and who we are becoming matters far more than what we do. Now, it's not that what we do doesn't matter, but all actions are an overflow of who we are. This is true of God also. His actions may be righteous, good, and loving, but that is only because at the core of it, his being is righteous, good, and loving. His actions are holy because he is holy. He is unable to act outside of his nature. We in the Western Christian world have got this so wrong. We expect behavioral change before sanctification. Or worse yet, we've presumed that the behavior having been changed means sanctification took place, and I don't believe it has. There is a change that you can accomplish in your own strength and by the power of your will, and there is a change that only God can do. People do it every day. They quit drugs. They leave a bad relationship. They're able to make changes because there is some personal incentive to do so. Sanctification is not really like that. It's God changing you in his strength and timing, and the incentive is for the whole body of Christ to his kingdom and every non-believer to make you a greater spiritual vessel for him. Sanctification makes you a more genuine, self-sacrificing servant. I'm not saying that change that is done by man can't last. It's just that it lasts as long as the incentive lasts, which for some people will be for the rest of their lives, and that is amazing and it's fantastic. But when it comes to the stuff that God does in you, you don't even have to try. I don't think I'll ever have to try and give glory to God the way I used to. I mean, I still have got far to go, 
But whatever it was in me that needed self-glory in place of God, that's disappeared. That's healed. The clarity of my actions lining up with the desire to glorify my God is actually so much clearer and there's less effort involved. What we ought really want is sanctification, not behavioral change. It requires us to be more patient with our shortcomings and the shortcomings of those around us, but it is far more valuable than we think. And here's a massive newsflash. God is patient with us. He is patient with our shortcomings and the shortcomings of those around us. He wants to sanctify us, not for us to just produce some externalized behavioral change that is not true of what has happened in our heart. Well, this is the second last episode for the season and next month will be the finale episode. Yes, it's another statements we could do without. And this time it's coming from a fear, guilt and shame edition. I specifically want to focus on statements that use fear, guilt and shame to motivate believers into action. And believe me, you want to hear this one because there's some ones that are a bit sneaky. But to close up, I want to say one more thing. Many Christians pray for revival. Many churches pray for revival. There are events where the whole day is dedicated to praying for revival. But what if revival isn't about a God who randomly moves his spirit? Maybe it's more about us. We all know the verse 2 Chronicles 7.14. I've heard more sermons about it than maybe any other topic. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. You know, sometimes we treat this verse as though the initiating factor here is the prayer, or sometimes we think it's about making non-believers turn from their wicked ways. But this statement was addressed to God's people. This is about our sin and our need to seek his face. This is how we take the step forward and maybe revival is simply his response to our genuine pursuit of sanctification where we are more concerned with being holy rather than simply doing holy looking things. The Lord says be holy as I am holy. Is it not interesting that God tells us here to be not just do? This has always been at the heart of this gospel that we are transformed in our inner being, not simply that we conform through social pressure to behavioural expectations set by some human being who has defined holiness according to their cultural norms. Ironically, I can't think of a more worldly thing to do. If it is at all possible that revival is simply God's response to his people authentically pursuing sanctification, then what are we waiting for? Are we willing to surrender our own pride and self-righteousness for revival? Or maybe the truth is that we just like praying for it because it gets more ahas and amens in a prayer meeting. I don't know. And actually, my opinion doesn't really count. But if there is even a few that, like me, are willing to keep going deeper on this journey of becoming holy, genuine holiness of heart, mind and spirit, not appearance, please keep going, keep going. Don't let discouragement engulf you. Don't get distracted. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing. You're not alone. Revival will surely come, even because of a few. 
thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.